what difference, what difference does God really make? It's kind of the, the big idea, the, the question that we're asking ourselves throughout this collection of talks that we started just two weeks ago. In fact, quick shout out, um, last week my wife and I were out of town uh, doing a friend's wedding in, in South Carolina, uh, just suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ on the beach of Hilton Head, South Carolina. And, uh, and we were pretty sure that God was telling us we're supposed to start a, start a church in Hilton Head, South Carolina, so we won't be here next week either, but uh, kidding, that's a joke. We're here for at least 30 years, and then we're moving to Hilton Head, South Carolina. But um, uh, Andrea Plummer, uh, who is no stranger to our community here, and Andrea is not in the room right now, um, shame on her. Uh, she's here somewhere, but she, she spoke last week, and she taught, and if you were here, you were able to be here on Memorial Day weekend, you know that it was fantastic. It was challenging and equipping and helped us better understand what does it look like to trust God. And, and, and yet, as great as it was last week, we're going to go in a little bit different direction of what Andrea went. I want to piggyback off of our first week in this, in this series. In week number one, we spoke from a message entitled, uh, Know God or Know God. And today, I'm going to do Know God or Know God Part 2, okay? So, so literally, how this kind of works, if you're newer to Ethos, kind of what happens is, um, we study a lot, uh, we put together um, a bunch of notes, and then we break those notes down into, into weeks' teachings, because if I just taught all of my notes in one week, we'd be here for three and a half hours, and what would happen after that is nobody would come the next week. You see what I'm saying? And so, so we kind of break it down into 30-minute teachings, and, and week number one um, was kind of one long teaching, and I broke it into two parts, and so today is the second installment of our first week's teaching of what difference, what difference does God make. Now, if you weren't here in week number one, it's still going to make sense today. We'll recap just enough to kind of give you some context for what we're talking about. But also, if you weren't here, I really believe it's a teaching that's beneficial for us as a community to lean into and better understand, because here's what I know. Here's what I know. Here's what I've discovered. And I think you've discovered this too, that, that, that the way that church has been done in the past needs to change in order to adjust to the changing of generations in society and culture today. That we can't continue to do church the same way we've done it 20 years ago. It won't be effective. It won't, it won't work. Okay, and I'll, I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit more for you. But if you weren't here in week one, uh, I would encourage you to check out the podcast and, and, and listen to that. But, but one of the things that we lean into really big here at Ethos is this, is this truth that, that Jesus really liked people who were nothing like him. And that people who were nothing like Jesus liked him. So even if, even if you're here today and maybe you're not a Jesus follower, and maybe you're not sure exactly, exactly what you believe, we're so glad that you're here because we have this belief that you don't have to believe the things that the people around you believe in order to belong in this community, in this family. And we believe that because that's what Jesus believed. So even if you think that the, at the very least Jesus was a good teacher, maybe he had some good things to say, uh, and, and that would kind of be the, the end of your thought in regards to maybe the supremacy or the superiority of Jesus, that kind of be where it would stop. Um, well, even if that's where it stops, we lean into this, we lean into this, that Jesus liked people who were nothing like him, and, and, and if you're nothing like Jesus, Jesus would really, really like you. He really would. And so I want to continue this, I want to continue this talk today, and, and we... And we, we had this quote that we shared in, in the first week, and it was, it was by a man named A.W. Tozer. He passed away in the mid-20th century, and if you've never read any of Tozer's books, he's brilliant, he's genius. 
And I would encourage all of us to read anything that Tozer has ever written. But, but he said this. He said that, that what comes to our minds when we think about God, it's the most important thing about you. What comes to your mind when the word God, the name God is mentioned, it is the single most important thing about you. Now, I didn't say that. I'm not smart enough to say that. I don't have enough credentials to say that. But if you know anything about Tozer, Tozer did. And I think that we ought to lean into, and I think we should give some time to discover what difference does God really make, especially in light of the fact that everything that we do in life stems from this cornerstone of thought, of thinking, which is that what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so if you're part of Ethos, if at this point you consider this place to be your home, which is the, which is the majority of you, um, I, I want us to understand this, that these talks, what difference does God make, this is really all in an effort as a young church, which is eight, almost eight and a half months old now, as a young church, this is an effort for us to better understand where are we going, who are we going to be, and how are we going to approach the changing of generation, the changing of culture, the changing of society as it relates to Christianity and maybe even uh, on a more broader scope, religion as a whole. So just, just hang with me for a moment. Just hang with me. But if you're not a Jesus follower, maybe this is your first time, maybe you've been coming for a while and you're just kind of checking this thing out, I hope that what we're talking about today and what we talk about over the next few weeks would better inform you in regards to the decision that you make and how you think about, how you think about God. Uh, for, for the vast majority of my adulthood life, um, my wife and I, we, we, were, we were youth pastors. Uh, we were youth pastors for, for about eight years, and then there was an additional about three-year period there where we worked with uh, uh, what we called generational ministry, uh, which was all the way from nursery. We said, we said from cradle to college. We kind of worked in, in, in all of those areas for about three years and, and worked with a fantastic team at, at, at our home church, uh, the church that my wife grew up in, the church that I was at for the last 12 years or 12 years before coming here. Uh, in Canton, Ohio, and being a youth pastor is literally one of the most fun things in the whole world. I'm just telling you, I had like one of the best jobs you could possibly have. Now, for the most part, youth pastors don't get paid a whole lot, uh, so that was a bit of a challenge, but, uh, but it's really fun, okay? Like, like, like we, would, we would come up with the craziest stuff to do on Wednesday nights during youth group, okay? Now, if you're not familiar with youth group, maybe you didn't grow up in church, um, you, you're, you, you might be better off because of it, um, but uh, you probably threw up less, especially if you were a part of my youth ministry, because we came up with some of the, the strangest. One time we thought, let's give somebody a $10 gift card to Starbucks if they drink a blended up McDonald's Happy Meal with a little bit of soda pop in it, right? We put a little root beer in it just to kind of enough to mix it up. No exaggeration, the kid who drank it threw up like two minutes after he drank it. Like, in fact, in fact, one week we even had this idea, let's see how fast somebody can eat an entire jar of peanut butter. Fortunately, one of our good friends was a, was a physical therapist and kind of worked in the medical field, and, and she ran up on the stage, and she's like, Jordan, Jordan, come here. And I'm like, okay, and I come over, and she goes, people have died and suffocated trying to eat peanut butter too fast. I was like, put the peanut butter away, guys. We're not trying to get sued today, okay? Like, we just, we had the, we had the craziest time doing, doing youth ministry stuff. And kind of near the end of my time in, in student ministry, I, I, I kind of figured out, I looked back through all of my notes and all of my records, I figured out I had at one point preached over 500 individual messages to youth, to students and to college-age 
age students. And, and I started thinking through all the conversations that I had, the one-on-one coffees, the, the times that I would be talking to a high school, a junior high, a college age student. And there would just been thousands of times I'm talking, talking one-on-one to, to young people. And, and I loved it. I loved it. But what I began to discover was there was this increasing trend of, of kind of older high school students, juniors, seniors, and then, and then young adults, college-age students, who were beginning to kind of deconvert from their childhood Christian faith that they were raised in. And they started kind of walking away from Christianity. They weren't walking away from God entirely, but they were just walking away from Christianity. And I would talk with these these students, at one point, it felt like it was every other week I'm having a conversation with somebody who's kind of, kind of maybe choosing a slightly different path. They weren't, they weren't willing to give up on God entirely, but they just, they just maybe began to kind of choose a different version of the God that they wanted to believe in. In fact, all of these stories were kind of the same. In fact, maybe you've experienced this, and if you personally haven't experienced this, you probably know somebody who has, because, because almost every deconversion story from Christianity is, is, is kind of the same. It all kind of starts off with, well, you know, I, I grew up in church. Like, I was raised in church. I experienced a childhood conversion of, of some kind. Then I transitioned to an irreligious environment. Maybe I went to college, to university. I changed schools and got a new group of, a group of friends. And I liked it. I liked the irreligious environment. I liked it, and I liked it a lot. And then I began asking adult questions to some of my, to my childhood faith, and I received faith-based answers to fact-based questions. And, and as one author, one author wrote that I was reading his book at the very end, and he said, he said, just one day it dawned on me, I don't know if I really believe this anymore. It, it, it didn't happen overnight. It just kind of one day, it just kind of dawned on me, I'm not sure if I believe this anymore. And belief is kind of a funny thing, isn't it? It's kind of a strange thing. Because generally speaking, we don't just arrive at this place of belief. Like I believe, like just suddenly it happened and nothing happened before. It just kind of, I just suddenly believed. And no, it's, it's kind of this slow process of believing. And oftentimes it's even a slow process of, of unbelieving. And if that wasn't the story, it was, this, it was this other story, kind of the same beginning. It was I grew up in church. I was kind of raised in church. I experienced a childhood conversion of some kind. But at a certain point, I experienced something that was devastating to my faith. I experienced something that was kind of traumatic to, to my faith. It was a faith-devastating event, a faith-crushing event. And it, it either wiped out my faith entirely or, or at the very least it kind of began to, to hurt my faith. And nobody likes to feel hurt, especially by, by God. And so consequently, because people feel hurt by their faith or by the childhood version of their faith, they begin putting God in a box. And so they begin to shape, and we, we all do this. I do this. You do this. The entire world does this. We begin to shape God into some form of a version of what we want him to be. And so we place him inside of the box because we're not willing entirely, hear me, we're not willing entirely to let go of the box, and let go of God. We want God when we want him. We want God when we need him. But we, we, don't, we, don't, want, we don't necessarily want to let him out in his entirety. And so, so sometimes what we'll do is we'll, we'll kind of take God and the parts of God that we really want, but then maybe on like Friday night we'll kind of set God back on the shelf. You know what I'm saying? And, and so we'll take the parts of God that we really like and we'll kind of put the parts of God that we don't like and we'll kind of 
set him, set him over there. Because if we believe all the parts of God, sometimes we get hurt by the childhood version of the God that we, that we once believed in. This was, this was without a doubt, this was, this was part of my story. Even as a youth pastor, I, uh, I kind of went through this season where I really wasn't sure what I believed. And here I am working in church, pastoring young people, and I just didn't know what I believed. Because I had experienced some devastating events that led me to wonder, is this, is this really real? In fact, at one point early on, I was only been a youth pastor for just a few months, and we had a leader who was one of our main leaders, one of our core, one of our core leaders. He was a small group leader in our junior high ministry, and he was walking into a Bible study, walking into a Bible study at a mutual friend's house, and, and he was actually held up at gunpoint, and they, they wanted to rob him, take his phone and his wallet. At one point, a car went by, and the gunman put the gun down, and at that point, my friend Dale reached for the gun. The gun went off. It shot him in the leg, and he ended up bleeding out. Here I am, a young youth pastor, maybe 24, 25 years old, and I've only been doing this for about four or five months. I began to wonder, what difference does God really make? Like, is there a benefit to believing versus, versus not believing? But over time, as I begin to ask these questions and I begin to search for some answers, and, I, and I, I myself begin to kind of place God in a box, but it dawned on me, it dawned on me that if, if my God is no bigger than my imagination and I can store God in a box, then I have a God that is no bigger than me. And that's a problem. Because I don't need a God who's no bigger than me. And if that's our version of God, what happens then is when anything happens that rubs against the grain of our imaginative God, of the God of our box, we slowly begin to question the character of God. And for, furthermore, we may even begin to question the, the existence of God altogether. But it, but it usually, again, it usually doesn't, happen, usually doesn't happen overnight. Now, a couple weeks ago, when we kicked this series off, we, we, we talked about how if we want to learn about anything, you've got to go to the to the source of all knowledge, Google. And so we, we, put Google, we, we put Google into our search bar. Well, actually, Google just is the search bar now, right? And, and, so, and I just typed in the word God. Just typed in the word God. And I clicked on images because I wanted to see what are people thinking of when they think of, when they think of God. And it's funny because it, like result after result after result is all pretty much the same. In fact, about the first two or three pages, which... Nobody goes to page number two anyway, but the first two or three pages was all the same. It's old white guy with a beard. Again, you search a little bit further and eventually you come across a slightly different image of God. And it's, it's, it's God on steroids. It's jacked God. It's ripped God. But still old, white, jacked, ripped God with a beard. And I started thinking about this and, and it dawned on me that, that there's another old man with a beard that, that, that we began to learn about right around the same time that many of us began learning about God. That's Santa Claus. Think about this for just a moment. Around the same age that we started hearing about God was around the same age that we started hearing about Santa Claus. As if we kind of used to believe in God kind of the same way that we used to believe in, in Santa. And Karen Armstrong in her book called The Case for God, she she was this woman who kind of deconverted from, from Roman Catholic nunhood, N-U-N, and, and, she, and she, she later kind of came back to faith and, and spirituality and Christianity. And she wrote this, 
she wrote this in her book, The Case for God. She said, many of us have been left stranded with an incoherent concept of God. We learned about God about the same time as we were told about Santa Claus. But while our understanding of Santa Claus phenomenon evolved and matured, our theology remained somewhat infantile. Not surprisingly, many of us rejected the God we had inherited and denied that he even existed. In other words, what Karen Armstrong is saying is, is that we grew up, hear me, hear me, we grew up, but our faith didn't. And so often I hear now story after story of, of young person, an older person, who is, who is describing the God that they no longer believe in. And I often think to myself, and sometimes I'll engage in conversation with these people if they'll allow me to, and, and, and I say, I don't really believe in that God either. Because the God that you abandoned, the God that you walked away from, that God doesn't exist to begin with. And so maybe, just maybe, we are walking away from a God that doesn't exist. And maybe, just maybe, if you are somebody that you know, and if it's somebody that you know, I pray and I hope my prayer leading into this week is that we would be equipped as a church, that we would be equipped as a community to best understand how to help people understand who God really is. Because maybe, just maybe, we're walking away from a false God that never existed. Maybe, just maybe, we ought to give God a second chance because there's a God who deserves our belief, who deserves our faith. And I think there's five versions of God. Five, and there's probably way more than this, but five that we're going to talk on pretty, pretty quickly this morning. And I'm going to call them the somebody told me so God, okay? I almost call it the Sunday school God, like the Sunday school version of our God, but I think a better term would be the somebody told me so God. These are the gods, lowercase g, that somebody told us about that at one point we walked away from. I think the, the, first, the first God that we walked away from, that, that we were kind of taught about as a young, as a young person is this, is this version of, of bodyguard God, okay? Bodyguard God is the God that doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. And for a lot of us, we were raised in a faith and raised in, in a Christian understanding where our entire faith hinges on this idea that God doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. And when bad things happen to good people, it begins to wreck our faith or, or, hear me, hear me, hear me, or we begin to point our finger to the person that bad things are happening to and begin to think they must not have faith. Which I think is even more detrimental to the reality of who God actually is. And it's funny because, because the entire Christian faith, our entire belief system as Christians hinges on the fact that a really, 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 really bad thing happened to a really, really, really good person. And yet, we're kind of dumbfounded when bad things happen to good people. It's funny because that same person, Jesus, who had a really bad thing happen to him, he said this in John chapter 16, verse 33. He, he said, I've told you all of these things so that in me you could have peace. In this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble. Like the great theologian Taylor Swift said, you're going to have trouble, trouble, trouble. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's a part of life. Like, you're going to have trouble, and as a follower of Jesus, we're not exempt from trouble. In fact, listen to this, in fact, listen, listen to this. The original 12 disciples, the 12 young men who committed their lives to following Jesus, they, they experienced some serious trouble. And I'd have a hard time believing that these guys didn't love Jesus, maybe more than, certainly more than me. Let, let's run through this list really quick. These are the 12 guys 
who, I'm just, I'll just read some of them for the sake of time. These are 12 guys, the original disciples, oftentimes referred to as the apostles. They were all teenagers, with the exception of Peter, when they were following Jesus during his three years of ministry here on earth. Peter was somewhere around the age of 20, so he's kind of later teen, maybe early, early 20s. Listen to this. Simon Peter, Peter, he was actually asked to be crucified upside down. Because he didn't want his death to be equal to the death of Jesus. So he wanted to be crucified upside down and, and the Romans obliged. Andrew, he, he was scourged and then he was tied rather than nailed to a cross so that he would suffer for a longer period of time before dying. Andrew lived hanging on that cross, being tied to the cross for two days. Meanwhile, he's preaching to every passerby, as, as scholars and historians would, would tell us. James, James... Uh, uh, oftentimes referred to James, the son of Zebedee, he was beheaded. Philip was scourged, thrown into prison, then crucified. Bartholomew, there's conflicting accounts about his death. One account says that he was beat and then crucified. Another one says that he was skinned alive and then beheaded. I don't know that one is better than the other. They both pretty much are bad. And then Thomas, he's killed by religious authorities with a spear. Matthew is stabbed in the back by a swordsman by, that was sent to him by King Herticus because because Matthew was talking about the, the immoral values that the king was embodying and representing in the kingdom. So the king's like, go take him out. James, son of Alphaeus, at the age of 94, at the age of 94, he's beaten and stoned and then killed by hitting him on the head with a club. Thaddeus, Thaddeus he's crucified. Simon the Zealot, he's crucified. Judas Iscariot, he kills himself. He's the betrayer because he feels so guilty after betraying Jesus. John, the beloved apostle of John, who wrote the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, he's the only one of the original 12 guys who didn't die some violent death. They say that he died peacefully on the island of Patmos at an old age, somewhere around 100 A.D. Good for John. <laughs> and yet, for so many of us, our entire faith system hinges on this idea that bad things don't happen to good people. So if I say yes to Jesus, bad things won't happen. And it's just not true. Because after a period of time, people begin to see enough bad things happen to enough good people, and it begins to hurt their faith. And I really believe that that teaching hurts the body of Jesus Christ. I really do. I've seen so many young people walk away because that's the God that they believed in. Now, now I, love, I love this story in the Old Testament, and we'll talk more about this next week. I'm spending too much time on this first one, but, but there's a story in the Old Testament, the older portion of the Bible, about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three, these three guys, these three buddies who, who refuse to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king orders its decree that the entire kingdom has to worship him, and these three guys are like, nah, we only bow down and worship one. And that's the real true God. The king catches wind of this, calls him before his kingdom, and says, you guys got to bow down. They say, no. He said, I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace. And the brothers, or the, or the friends, they, they say, you can throw us in the furnace, and God's going to save us. But even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down to you. And I love that type of faith. It's his faith that says, no, I believe that God's going to, he's going to save us. He's going to restore us. He's going to heal us. He's going to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, I refuse to give in. I will not let my faith back down. And I think there's something beautiful about that. And I think, I think, I believe that that's the reality of the God that we serve. I think the second God that we oftentimes abandon unjustifiably is this God, I'll call him the Amazon Prime God. Okay, it's the God where I'm expecting it now, God, right? Like, it's the God who always responds to every selfless and, and fair prayer request, the way that we would respond. 
like with immediate answered prayer. But at a certain point in our life, you, you asked for an answer and heard nothing. You asked for a sign, saw nothing, a miracle, received nothing. And I have to ask, I have to ask, who told us that God always responds the way that we expect him to respond? I thank God for protecting me from what I thought I wanted and blessed me with what I didn't know that I actually needed. Some of the greatest things that have happened in my life are a result of unanswered prayer. Wow. And yet so often we teach and make this assumption and, 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 and help, and, and, and all in good intentions, I, I totally know, but we, 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 we teach that God's going to answer that prayer. But what if he doesn't? Because my daughter, who's 10, wants ice cream every day. And you know what I don't give her every day? Is ice cream. Until she looks at me with like really big brown eyes and, and then I sneak her some ice cream when Courtney's not looking. But, but, but if Courtney's God, she'd be a way better God than me. She would treat my daughter with much better than I would. But, but, but the point is, and I know I'm kind of being facetious and silly about it, but, but the point is, the point is, God knows best. And, and, and if we have a God who's only as big as our imagination, we have a God that's no bigger than us, but if we'd be willing to let God out of the box, at a certain point in time, you'll begin to discover, oh, God's bigger than me. And God, he knows best. The third, the third God is, is goosebump God. Okay, now if you grew up in any sort of charismatic environment, you're very familiar with goosebump God. This is the idea that the, this, this is the God whose presence can always be felt. And so we think if we can't feel his presence, he must not be present, right? And, and have you ever been in a church service before or a worship environment before? And somebody, I mean, they're just like, they're just like, they're getting into it, man. They're like, once I was broken. And you're like sitting beside me like, man, you're really feeling it, huh? You're like, all I feel is sweaty right now. And I don't think that's God, you know? And you look and you think, well, man, I, they sense God, but I don't sense God. Maybe God's not for me. Or furthermore, maybe God isn't even real. Maybe they're just faking this whole thing. But, but, but here's, here's what I've discovered. I started, thinking about this, this, I started thinking about this idea this week. The things that are most constant in our lives, we're oftentimes least aware of. Think about it for a moment. If you walk into a room, usually not this room, thank God for portable church, but thank God for a building someday. If you walk into a room and the temperature is perfect, and you're in there for hours, you know what you don't do? You don't turn to your friend next to you and say, temperature's really perfect in here. You don't do that. Because you're least aware of that which is most constant. You don't wake up one morning and think, I feel so American today. <laughs> right? Like if you're a young person, if you're a student, you wake up, you're like, I just feel like a student today. Like, who says that? Nobody. Because you're least aware of that which is most constant. So maybe it's not that God isn't always there. It's just that we're not always aware. And the fourth version of God is guilt God. Now, now a lot of us grew up with, with this God. And depending on your, your, your background, whether it's kind of this, this fundamentalist, maybe Baptist, Methodist, Charismatic, Pentecostal, whatever your background is, so many of us kind of regardless of our background, we grew up with, with guilt God. It's the God that no matter what you do, it's just never enough. And at, so, at some point, you, you, you stop wanting to feel guilty all the time. And so you just kind of walk away from God because the God that you've been taught 
is a God who kind of, he, he, he gets you to submit and to surrender out of fear and intimidation, which is the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite of who God is. In fact, the scriptures say that it's God's goodness, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. You know, repentance is the most beautiful and attractive word in the Christian language. Like, repentance literally means to turn from something bad to something good. That's, that's, that's what it means. To turn from, we hear repent, and we're like, repent! The kingdom of God is here! You feel guilty! Bad human being, you know? But no, it's actually the exact opposite. It's like, hey, I, I want to I give you the opportunity to repent. To turn from something bad to something so infinitely much, much, much better. And so we walk away from guilt, God, because we think that guilt, God, doesn't want us to enjoy life. If it's enjoyable, you can't do it. It's bad. It's bad. You, you, play, you play basketball? Do you have fun? Stop playing basketball. It's, it's, it's serious about heaven and hell, people. You know? And you're like, I don't want to feel that way. Well, guess what? God, God doesn't want you to feel that way, that way either. You know the most famous scripture, probably the most famous scripture in all the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life and would not perish. Well, verse 17, which oftentimes goes overlooked, it goes on to say, for God did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through his love, through his son Jesus. We forget that so often. Guilt God, if you walked away or you know somebody who's walked away from the Christian faith because of guilt God, I would encourage you to reconsider. I would encourage you to encourage your friend to reconsider. And the last one, the last one is anti-science God. I'm going to talk about, a little bit more about this in the, in the weeks to come. But, but in fact, next week I, I really think is probably the most important teaching in this series. Um, but but anti-science God is, is one of the bigger ones that I've seen as a, as a youth pastor. The anti-science God is the God where you have to choose between undeniable science or what you might consider unreliable religion. It's the idea that we've been taught where people say, you just got to quit thinking about it and just, just start believing. Quit thinking, quit asking all those questions. Just believe. You just have to believe. And I think good intentions, I think people have great intentions. But, but the truth is that when religion and science begin to conflict, for most people, if we're honest, science usually wins. And again, we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, but this whole idea, this whole thing that Christianity is just based on belief, it's not true. Hear me, hear me. We become a Christian through faith, through faith in Jesus, but we're not Christians because we just believe things. There's a whole lot more substance to that. It's not just, just quit, quit thinking, quit asking all those questions, just believe, you just gotta have faith. Have faith in what? Faith in faith. Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. And yet, I'm, and I, I'm not trying to belittle because, because the truth is, is I, I've done that. I've said that. I've, I've, I, I've been that ignorant. But there's so much more than just having faith in faith. And I think the tragedy of what's happened with anti-science, God, is that we have sent so many young people off to college, off to universities, off to graduate school, with this false sense of conflict between faith and science. And it doesn't exist. The conflict between faith and science, it doesn't exist. I understand, and we'll talk about it more in weeks to come, so just hang with us. I understand why there's conflict there, but I'm telling you it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be there. 
You know, there's this, uh, there's this show, uh, and if somebody can help me close out on keys, there's this, there's this show, and, and many of you have probably seen it before, and I don't, um, so, oh my gosh. <laughs> Man, we're getting good. I love you so much, Colton. There's this, there's this show, and a lot of you are probably familiar with it, and I've never actually seen it besides this one episode. It's the only episode I've seen. It's the, it's the Antique Roadshow. And, and if, you're, if you've never heard of it before, or, or maybe you're not familiar with it, you'll catch the drift here pretty quickly. But there's this guy, and he goes to this estate sale. It's a, you know, real life, like reality TV show. And he goes to this estate sale, and he buys this book that, that he is told is a first edition copy assigned by the original author. And so he buys this book with the understanding that this thing is worth a fortune. Like, he has hit the jackpot. And so he purchases it for $2,000. Okay, and the, and the show kind of builds it up in a way where you know exactly where this thing is going. And, and they show up to these two guys in the Antique Road show, and, they, and they give, he gives them the book, and, and these guys are examining it. And the first thing they say is, well, hey, first off, uh, this is not signed by the original author, and they, they, they kind of show them how they understand the penmanship of the original author. And, and, then, and then they say, and, and furthermore, it's actually, it's actually not, a, it's not a first edition copy either, and it's, it's, it's probably only worth about 10 bucks. And it's, and it's kind of comical as you watch the show, because, because here's this guy, he thinks he's hit the jackpot, only to discover that, that it's worth nothing. I think this is how we are. For so many of us, when it comes to our Christian faith, and for so many of us, when it comes to just religion or Christianity as a whole, we, we keep God in a box, and we kind of pull him out when we really need him, when we need him to be valuable to us, we, we kind of pull him back off of the shelf, only to discover that, that the God that we believe in is the counterfeit version of the real God, and he has no value in our life, and consequently we begin to walk away, or at least we begin to water down our faith in God. I was reading this book, it was written in 2005, and it's called Soul Searching. And it was actually a, actually a book that was done uh, in an effort to study America's teenagers in, 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 2000, in 2005. And, and the authors found something and they labeled something that is still commonly spoken about today called moral therapeutic, moral therapeutic deism. In other words, these authors found as they began to study these young people that these young people believed in several moral statutes, not exclusive to any one major world religion. They began to identify this moral therapeutic deism that they, that they, that they called. It's really the idea that there's a God who exists, who created and ordered the world, and watches over all of human life. Now, this God wants people to be good, to be nice, to be fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be, to be happy, to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in anyone's life except when God is really needed to resolve a problem. That good people go to heaven when they die. And as you read over that, it's, it's really interesting to me because as I read that, and as I was reading this through the book, it dawned on me, this is kind of like the American Christian faith right here. This is what we've done to God. We just kind of, just kind of, okay. This is who I kind of, these are the parts of God that I really like, and so I'll kind of put that in here. Yeah, I'm a good person. I'll go to heaven when I die. I don't really need God to be involved in too many areas of my life, except for when I, like, really need him to be involved in a certain area of my life. And so I'll kind of put that in there. We begin to formulate the, our version of God, our imaginative version of God in a box. 
And what's interesting is that 14 years later now, since that book has been written, 14, 14 years later, those teenagers that were studied in 2005, they're, they're obviously now they're, they're, all, they're all adults. adults. In, fact, in fact, the book, it was almost eerie as I was reading it. It really describes kind of the world around us now. That their view back then speaks to our spiritual state in our society, our society today. We want God. Most, most of America now wants God. In fact, in fact, statistics would tell you that only 7% of our nation would say, I don't want anything to do with God, any version of God. Only 7%. It's a pretty low number. So most people want, they want God. It's just that we want him on our own terms. Because for most, most of us, we're, we're not on a truth quest. For most of us, we're on a, we're on a happiness quest. What I'm asking for us as a community, as a church, is that we would be a people from now and forevermore, that we would be on a truth quest. Because what comes to mind when you think about God, if you pause for a moment, you begin to realize it's the most important thing about me. So we lean into the reality of who God really is. We search for truth. Because, because we have to ask ourselves, did our view of God grow up or did we just outgrow it? Because when I see, what I see happening is, is people are asking grown-up questions that undermine our childhood faith. In, in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's this idea that, that if today, if today, if right now, if this morning, if a five-year-old came up to you and asked you, where do babies come from? You would probably respond on that child's level with an honest and an appropriate answer. Mommy's tummy. If a 15-year-old came up to you and asked you, where do babies come from? You'd probably respond slightly different, still in an appropriate way. If a pre-med or a graduate school student came up to you and they asked you where do babies come from, you're going to explain it to them in a completely different way, all of which are honest answers, all of which are honest attempts to answer the question, but, but, but spoken to in accommodating the age and really the maturity level of that particular person. And at some point when it relates to our faith in God, mommy's tummy isn't good enough anymore. And so did, did, did we kind of really abandon God or did we just kind of outgrow the faith that we once had in God? And I think we just need to better understand who God really is. So what difference does God really make? Every difference. And it's worth discovering. It's worth leaning into. It's worth taking some time and figuring out. I want to know the truth. I want to close with this. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, Moses is having this interaction with, with God. In fact, God is sending Moses, he's sending him back to, to, to the Israelite people, but Moses is kind of afraid, he's kind of intimidated, he's kind of scared, and, and he says to God, he says, okay, fine, I'll agree to go back, but who, who am I going to tell them that sent me? He says, the God, suppose I go to the Israelites, verse 13, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what's his name? Then what shall I say? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're going to say to them. 
But you say to the Israelites, tell them, I am has sent me to you. It kind of sounds poetic. It sounds like almost theoretical. Like, God, what are you talking about? What God is, what God is really saying, he's saying, I, I am who you will need me to be, not necessarily who you always want or thought me to be, but I am and always will be exactly, exactly who you need me to be. So maybe, just, just, just maybe the God that you've been jaded by, the God that you've been angry with, the God that you're not sure about isn't the real God in the first place. And maybe, just maybe, we've got the wrong God. And maybe it's time that we really let God out of the box. And say, God, I, I want to know, know who you really are. One of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. It says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we dare ask, think, or imagine, to him owns all the power, glory, forevermore. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is that God is bigger than anything you ever imagined. He's greater anything you ever dreamed of. He's better than anything you could ever possibly think him to be. But we've got to give him a chance because sometimes we walk away from God so quickly. We abandon the God of our childhood faith unjustifiably. And if we just lean in, God will show you I am bigger and better than you could ever imagine me to be. But if you keep me in the, God, in the box, I'll never be able to show you who I really am. And you may walk away from me and keep me on a shelf unjustifiably. And so my challenge for us as a young church, as a young community, is that as we continue to grow, that we would be a people who would always be so big with arms wide open, that we'd be so inclusive with arms wide open, that we'd be so welcoming with arms wide open, that we would be people who say, I don't care what you believe. I don't care where you've come from. I don't care what your version of Christianity is. Our God is so big that you are welcome to find out the truth here. That we would not be people who would shy away from the difficult questions of faith. That we would not be those who just give faith-based answers to fact-based questions. But we'd say, no, no, you're, the, the doubters are welcome here. The skeptics are welcome here. The atheists are welcome here. This is a place that is safe for you to ask questions. You are welcome here because our God is bigger than our imaginations. And so maybe, maybe, maybe you've walked away from God. But maybe, maybe, maybe we could be a church that would show people who God really is. And through our relationship, we could provide hope again, to breathe again, to rest again, to find encouragement again.